0: Let me get you, if you would please, uh, open to the Bible, Mark chapter 15, which you'll find in the Pew Bible on page 852. I'm going to read the entire chapter this morning. This is a very special passage of the Bible, and uh, it seems like a good thing to read the whole thing, so I'm going to read the entire passage. I ask you to remain seated until we get to um, the sort of climax of the story as it's told by Mark, and I'll get you to stand when we get to verse 22. So remain seated as we begin Mark chapter 15, verses 1 to See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. That is, Pilate released one prisoner. Verse 7. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And when they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma simectani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And son of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were so many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd be pleased to send your spirit powerfully upon us, that you would open our ears and our hearts, and give us grace that we might hear your word. Believe it, Father. Obey it and rejoice in it. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Many of you will know about a book called Dune, uh, Frank Herbert's 19, 1965 science fiction classic. I've been reading it lately. Uh, It's been turned into a box office hit uh, released in October of last year. It won a couple of Academy Awards. Uh, A few years ago, I heard that this was the world's best-selling science fiction novel, one of the best sellers of all time in the fiction world. Uh, I don't imagine I'm the only Dunehead in the room at the moment. Maybe you read the book at one time, maybe you saw the movie. Uh, It's an interesting story. It's sort of captivating. Uh, It's the story set in the distant future of the Atreides family on this planet called Arrakis, and uh, it revolves around a messianic figure. Uh, He's introduced in the very first paragraph of the first book. uh, The author, uh, Frank Herbert, wrote a number of Dune books, and in the very first volume, the very first paragraph, is about this messianic figure who has come to be called uh, Muad'Dib. If you know the, the mythology of Dune, you'll know the central place, this character uh, has uh, a role to fill in the book, and uh, I won't give away any of it too much. If you care to read it, but it revolves around this character, and he's, he's sort of his life unfolds. The significance of his life unfolds. Uh, the book is full of all these predictions and prophecies of this character, the Muad'Dib, the Messiah. Um, it turns out, Muadi, if you're interested at all, is a, is an actual Arabic word. It means an educator or an instructor. Uh, As they understood it in this fictional world, the Messiah was an instructor, someone who taught the truth, someone to tell about things. Well, I think that's very often what the world expects from its messianic characters. Uh, You don't have to go to the fictional world of Dune to find that out. It's in our world, too. A lot of the great religious messianic figures in world history have had that role of educator, instructor. Uh, Think of someone like Muhammad, who leads uh, the Islamic faith. He came to be an instructor. Think about Buddha, uh, who uh, wasn't a divine character, but sort of represented divine truth and reveals how to live life in this world productively. And uh, Interestingly, uh, Frank Herbert, who wrote Dune, was raised Roman Catholic, but converted to Buddhism. And so he sort of brought with him these categories of the messianic character as an educator and instructor, someone to teach about truth, to tell us about things. Well, that's kind of the way the world looks at it. The world has a category for the messianic teacher, uh, the messianic figure who comes in to teach the truth. And I, I think there's a sense in which a lot of us inherit that way of thinking about the Messiah, the Christ. Um, And it's certainly true that in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is presented as the great teacher who who came into the world and and he taught the truth, The, the Gospel of Mark, the shortest gospel, is filled with examples of Christ teaching the truth, instructing his people, instructing you and me on the realities of life and and how to live a life that is pleasing to God. um, So we all bring that category of teacher. Well, as far as it goes, that's not an unhelpful category, but it's not the central category of what Christ was and is and was always intended to be. Because in the Gospel of Mark, in all the Gospels throughout the New Testament, and in in fact, throughout the Bible, God had always promised not only to send those who would teach the truth, but actually to send those who would live the truth and fulfill the truth. That God actually was more than about telling us things. He actually intended to do something something centrally important, something so important that 2,000 years later we're gathered here in this room to remember it. In fact, we're going to gather around this table in just a moment. Uh, We're going to gather around and what we will be doing is remembering not only what Christ taught us, but what he has done for us. The center of our life in Christ is what Jesus has done for us. And the one who has done this for us is also the one who teaches us and gives us an example, a model. He does do those things. But it actually flows first out of what he has done, which only he has ever done. Muhammad doesn't claim to have done this. Buddha doesn't claim to have done this. Religious leaders in other great Religious traditions do not claim to have done this. What we're looking at today in Mark chapter 15 is a unique claim. Too crazy, too unimaginable for a writer like Frank Herbert to try and incorporate it into his book of best-selling fiction. It's true that truth is more amazing, harder to believe sometimes than fiction is. And that's what Mark is very concerned to give us here in this passage we're going to look at today. And I'm just going to focus briefly on a few things, because I I want to separate what Mark is telling us about what Jesus Christ has done from what the world tells us and what our culture tells us. What Mark wants to tell us is that Jesus the Messiah was crucified for us. He was crucified for us. He he teaches us the truth, but more importantly, still, is that he was crucified for us. He died for us. If you look at this chapter, it's a long chapter, uh, but as I said, it felt right to read the whole thing. Uh, It was beautiful to see the children uh, walking in. Uh, I got to tell you that—that is just a delight to me to see. Uh, and like Jay was saying, what a happy thing it is to see these little ones who are just hearing this story for the first time. You and I have heard it so many times, but many of them are, are really just beginning to hear it. They're just beginning to reflect on what this is all about. What they just just did acted out Mark chapter nine. Sorry, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 is the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday is is this celebration of Christ entering into Jerusalem. Uh, Primarily because he entered into Jerusalem to do something. He was heading somewhere. In Mark chapter 11, he enters Jerusalem. In chapters 12, 13, and 14, he is teaching what he's about to do. And in chapter 15, he does it. He does what he had come into the world to do, which all the Old Testament had been pointing towards, which all the prophets, all the prophets had been pointing towards this one unimaginable thing that the incarnate God was going to accomplish. So uh, chapter 15 begins, uh, as the ESV editors uh, describe it, with Jesus being delivered to Pilate. Uh, we get so used to hearing this, we we forget to pay attention. Pilate's a real person. If you were an archaeologist, you could look at archaeological evidence separate from the Bible about Pontius Pilate. He was a real person who lived. There are records. Non-Christians wrote about Pontius Pilate. He lived. He was anchored in history. Unlike Arrakis which was floating around in a brilliant writer's imagination, what Mark is describing, he wants us to know, is actually anchored in history. It really happened. So he tells us that at the beginning of this most important chapter. It it had to do with the elders, the scribes, the whole Jewish council delivering Jesus over to this historical figure. It's meant to be anchored in history. It's meant to be anchored in truth. This is not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It really happened. All of Mark's gospel, all of the gospels, and the gospel, singular, is anchored in this historic reality, this person who really lived. Verse 2, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? The Jews were a historical people and still are. That's a reality. That's not a made-up thing. This is a myth. This is real. And and Pilate asked this real person this significant question. Are you the king of the Jews? See, the the Jews were expecting their coming king. That's the the theme of VBS this year. The coming king. The coming king. Because that king is is forever coming into his world. He's come once in time and space in history. It's happened but it happens again and again and again in the lives of those who encounter this king. And like every one of these little ones, they're meeting him for the first time. He's coming into their lives. He's becoming a reality for them. They're having to engage with him. And you see, that's, the, that's what the whole Gospel of Mark is meant to do. The whole Gospel of Mark is meant to make its readers, you and me, to actually interact with this coming king. What does it matter? What is the significance of it? What is he going to tell us to do? It's very often what we want from our kings, for them to tell us what to do. Well, Mark's going to tell us more than that. He's going to tell us what to do, but it actually flows from what he has done. That's where Mark puts his focus. You know, the first uh, ten chapters of Mark's gospel is about 33 years, 10 chapters, 33 years. Chapter 11 begins the last week of Jesus' life. There's only a few chapters in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 16 is the last chapter. Well, through, cha- all, of chap- through all the chapters up to chapter 10, it's about Jesus' life and teaching the truth of, his, of, of the amazing things he told, told us. But in chapter 11, he enters Jerusalem for that last week of his life. And it's in this last week of his life that Mark focuses most of his attention. And in chapters 11 and 12 and 13 and 14, it's, it's Jesus interacting in a very focused way with his disciples and with the world around him. And again, he's teaching the significance of what he's come to Jerusalem to do. And here in chapter 15, as he is about to do it, we discover it involves something he's already predicted back in Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, before he came to Jerusalem, he came to Jerusalem knowing this. Mark chapter 9 says the Son of Man has come into the world to suffer and to die. Peter got into trouble because he said, no, we don't want that to be true but Jesus knew it was true, and more importantly, Jesus knew it was important for you and me to know it's true. So, uh, Jesus is delivered over to Pilate to this real historical figure representing one of the great powers of the world, Roman Empire, Rome. Rome figures prominently in the gospel of Jesus. The, The greatest power of the world And up against all of that comes one man. In verse 6, Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified. Uh, Again, we're so used to the idea of crucifixion, we hardly think about it. But there was no more barbaric way to die. It was actually ultimately outlawed. It was just too barbaric. But here in Mark's gospel, enshrined for all time, is a record of this horrible, barbaric way of killing people. Where they were actually hung on a cross and where their, the weight of their own bodies would kill them. It wasn't the nails through the hands that killed Jesus. It was the weight of his own flesh pulling down, and they they crucified him in such a way that he couldn't use his legs properly to lift himself up so he could breathe normally. So fluid began to gather in his lungs, and, and they say, doctors who've looked at this passage and others say, that basically Jesus would have died a horrible death. He basically suffocated on his own blood, drowned in his own blood, and if that wasn't enough, in verse 16 it says, the soldiers who were gathered around him, they all mock him and make fun of him. They laugh at him. They deride him. They put robes on him and, and they put a crown of thorns on him. Again, just to, to mock him. Oh, you're a king? Here's your crown. A crown of thorns. Here's your royal robes. Verse 21, they they actually stop a fellow, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country. It's the father of Alexander and Rufus. I, I guess the suggestion is that the church that received the gospel of Mark might have known Alexander and Rufus. Maybe Maybe they were around. Maybe there were people who would have read Mark's gospel who knew about Alexander and Rufus and their father. Well, this man, Simon, is... Drafted. He's dragged by the most powerful, the representatives of the most powerful country in the world. They drag him, and they make him carry this cross. Jesus is so weak and so exhausted as he's preparing to be held up on the cross. As he endures all the mockery of that and all the, the turmoil around that, uh, Simon's dragged into it. They offer Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. It, it was... Um, a reference to death, bitter. They crucified him in verse 24. There at Golgotha, a place which means in Aramaic, place of a skull. It was a place of death, and they knew it. They named the place that. So all this suffering, all this hardship is described. Jesus endured it. It's the climax of his life. The things that happened on, on this day and the, the two or three days that follow are the climax of Jesus' entire life. They're the, the exclamation point. We've called this series the crux of history. Because these three days, what we're going to think about today and what we're going to think about next Sunday, all of which happen within about three days, this represents the, the crux, the center of everything. Not an imaginary story, but a true story that forms the center, the, the middle, the turning point, the defining moment, the crux of everything boils down to these three days they crucified him. And in verse 33, uh, he dies. I, I, I simply can't read verse 33, 34, 35, 36, 37 without tears. I just can't do it. Cries out in verse 34 Eloi, Eloi, that's God, God. Lemisamakthani. And Mark translates that from Aramaic to the language the people understood, and we get it in English because we wouldn't understand Aramaic. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here in Mark chapter 15, as Jesus is crucified for us, he takes upon himself everything evil in the world. He takes upon himself sin and judgment. It's just heaped upon him. Like the weight of his own flesh, which keeps him from breathing. The weight of our sin is heaped on this one person. The sin, not just the people gathered around calling out, crucify him, crucify him. Not just the, the thousands who would have been alive at this time, the the few millions scattered around the whole world, but the billions and billions of people who would one day call upon him, Jesus takes all of that upon himself. He was crucified there in Jerusalem, 33 AD or thereabouts, anchored in history, and it all had significance, significance that was written about by Mark, and which has been shared through the millennia down to you and me, to these little ones, and to each one of us, that we would interact with this one person, that we would interact with him, that we would think about what he has done and its significance for us. Well, uh, Mark's gospel was never meant to be read completely alone, because Mark's gospel, like all the Bible, is a story that has a theme, a narrative running right of the way through. We're doing a great Bible study on Tuesday nights. We're looking at the book of Ruth. And what we discover, you can't read Ruth as though there's no other part of the Bible. You understand Ruth in light of the rest of the Bible. And you understand Mark chapter 15 in light of the rest of the Bible. So let me get you to look at one cross-reference. And I'm convinced this cross-reference was central to what Mark is describing. Look over to page 614 in the, in the Bible. See, prophecies and predictions. The, these are the way we know the Messiah, the way we understand the Messiah. The way we truly understand what Jesus did is by not only what Mark tells us, by what, but also by what Mark knew As he wrote down the story he wrote down. So look at Isaiah chapter 53 verses 4 to 9. One of my favorite preachers has said that Isaiah 52 and 53 is is maybe the best commentary on the gospel account of Christ's crucifixion. Isaiah foretold what Christ would do. He, He told the disciples in Mark chapter 9. He explained to them. Well, Isaiah tells us, verses 4 to 9. Chapter 53, verses 4 to 9. And you'll see echoes of what Mark has told us. Isaiah writes, Surely he has borne our griefs, our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. That's, isn't that exactly what happened with Pilate? He didn't say anything. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, that's what the Roman authorities, the Jewish authorities were doing. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, And look at verse 9, and keep this in mind in light of the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. How these words must have been echoing in Mark's mind as, as he recounts what he saw, what he heard about, what he knew to be true. Was he an eyewitness? We don't know for sure, but he certainly heard from eyewitnesses. He would have been alive at this time. And he describes the witnesses of those who observed it with their own eyes. And as he described it, what he's describing is not only a crucifixion, not only a model of suffering hardship that wasn't deserved. It is that. But even more fundamentally, It was someone being crucified for others. Specifically crucified for his people, for you and for me and for his covenant people through the ages. For Joseph Munoz who was baptized here last Sunday. For these little ones who marched in singing about Christ coming to Jerusalem. Jesus took upon himself and was crucified for them so that all of us might have never-ending life. Well, he's going to tell us more about that as this story unfolds. Mark has a whole story in mind as he sums up these three days. But today, as we gather at this table, I invite you, I urge you, I beg you to take seriously what Jesus has done. To reflect seriously on the historic reality of what Mark is telling us about. Uh, Maybe that this is the first time you've really thought about it, that you've ever actually figured, I want to think this through personally. If that's you today, nothing would make us happier than to talk with you and pray with you. I'd be happy to do it. Any of our elders, deacons, church officers, really, any of us here at Metrocrest would be beyond delighted to help you to think through the significance of Jesus Christ crucified for you. That's that's my prayer for all of us.